Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. All right, thank you very much. So, um, as you know, this festival does not have a best first novel prize, but it sort of does because Val McDermott's uh, New Blood panel is effectively that. What she does is she reads all the debuts of the year and she picks out the four most interesting and uh, they talk about it and it's really a huge boost for us readers because it brings us uh, brings the new talent to our attention so i had the idea for this year what happened next all of these four were splendid debut novels chosen for that panel in previous years and i wanted to know how has it been since because i remember the start of my career you, you it's like starting a marathon not that i've ever done that in fact, I've never run anywhere, but I imagine, using a novelist's imagination, I assume that starting a marathon, you start with a tremendous burst of energy and excitement and enthusiasm, and then within a mile or so, you, you realize this is a long slog, you know, the slog sets in. So this is what we, we want to talk about. And normally this is a completely reader-centric event, but I think inevitably we're going to talk a little bit about the business of it. How was it all the various hurdles, not just the literary hurdles, but the business hurdles and the personal hurdles in how we start. So we've, we have got... At the far end, Eva Dolan from Essex. Mm -hmm. Then we've got, <laughs> <laughs> then we've got Liam McIlvany, a Scottish person. <laughs> hey. Then we've got Abia Mukherjee, another Scottish person. Hey. Not that I'm implying any kind of bias in Val McDermott's selections whatsoever. <laughs> She's and got a thing about Essex. Yeah. To, re <laughs> to restore the balance, we got Kate Rhodes from London. And uh, Thanks, so what I want to know is, how did it feel? Obviously, your first novel, excitement, it feels great. Uh, how was it with your second novel? Eva, you start. Oh, I don't want to be really negative. Just right <laughs> at the beginning. No, actually, it was, it was strange with your second novel because actually you've got a lot less time to write it. Um, and as you're finishing it, like your first novel's just come out. So my first novel got, obviously, obviously, really nice <laughs> reviews. Or I wouldn't have been on the New Blood panel unless some people had liked it. Um, so you've kind of... There's all of a sudden this fresh pressure that you haven't had before. Because, you know, you write your first book in isolation and you don't know if anyone's going to read it, so you just do it for yourself. And then just as you get into the end of that first draft of the second book, the reviews start coming in and the beta readers and, and stuff like that. And it, you start to second-guess what you're doing in the next book a little bit because you all of a sudden you're thinking about the audience, not just about yourself. But I got quite lucky with um, my second book. So it was, um, it was another very kind of political... Uh, crime novel about um, murder of asylum seekers. Um, so it was it was pretty heavy duty, and I think people knew to expect that from me. But I got really lucky with that one because that got shortlisted for the Theakstons Awards. So that kind of um, 
just that alone took away that kind of dread of the second novel that, of course, all other established writers love to tell you, ah, yes, but it's the second novel that's the difficult one. They're just literally waiting around to give you a little bit of a kick in on the confidence <laughs> front. But that, quite, that really helped a lot, having that happen. Um, and it kind of it, it smoothed the way for the rest of the series for me because it, it kind of just silenced my inner critic a bit. And Kate, I mean, you were, you were on the first blood relatively, what, six years ago? In 2012, that's yeah, so, yeah. And actually, I'm looking at the list of titles I've got for you, and it's enormously long. You probably can't remember your second novel. <laughs> I can, actually. <laughs> and I think... I, I don't know whether I had that kind of typical thing, which is to have second novel-itis, where you think, I've written my first novel, it took me forever, it was a work of passion, um, and the second novel in, is inevitably going to be a difficult child to give birth to. But I think, yeah, I think I was a bit more nervous about the second one, weirdly. It should be the other way around. You should be kind of thinking, yeah, I've written a good first novel, everybody seems to think it's okay. But actually, yeah, you become enormously critical because you're aware that people are actually going to read it and criticise it. So, yeah, I think I was a bit scared. Yeah, I remember that. You know, people have been so kind about the first novel and uh, so welcoming about it that you the stakes were enormously higher. You felt that uh, instead of just letting yourself down, you're going to be letting a whole lot of other people down. Liam, what did you think? Yeah, well, I remember my um, agent at the time quite helpfully saying to me, OK, you've written your first novel. What age are you? At 40. OK, you've had 40 years to prepare for that. Now you've got a year to write the, the next one. So, uh, which didn't quite happen in, in that way. But uh, I think I also made the mistake of, of writing a sequel because I thought writing a sequel would be very easy. You've just got everything set up and established. And I found that that wasn't actually the case, partly because you've got to remember what you did in the first book and what age your protagonist's kids were and so on. So my sort of continuity issues uh, <laughs> came back to bite me a bit with the, with the second book. But I was surprised at the extent to which you kind of know, you learn nothing about writing a book, or I did, by writing the first book. I thought, right, I've written a book, I know how to write books. No, you have to learn with every book, I think, how to write that particular book. Yeah, there's one of those very famous and boring literary quotes that says, uh, you never learn how to write a novel. With a bit of luck, you might learn how to write the one you're writing now. Yeah. Um, and that's about as good as it gets. Abby, you, you were fair, I mean, you're slightly different because it was fairly recent. Uh, I still can't remember it. That's just because I'm old. But <laughs> yeah. Well, I can remember it because it was on this year's shortlist for the, uh, for the main prize, and it was a hell of a book. Um, so did you, how did you find following it up? Do you know what? It's, it's one of those things where you think you've climbed a mountain only to realise that you've just reached the foot of a, of a much bigger mountain. Um, and it, it, was, it was strange. I mean, for me, talking about learning how to write, I learnt to write between the first and the second draft of my first novel. Um, I'd never done any writing classes before. As I was saying to you, I only started writing because I saw you on Breakfast TV in September 2013 saying, it's true, I've said it here, you know, I was 39, hurtling towards 40, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I saw Mr Child on the TV saying at the age of 39 he'd started writing, and I thought, that's what I'll try, and so it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I know, the responsibility. It's, yeah. it's just as well he didn't say, at the age of 39 I started doing ballet. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you saying about my dancing skills? <laughs> could be the I next new era. That's true. So, That's yeah. true. <laughs> uh, Kate, you you are um, a poet as well, and a very sort of. I try not to tell anybody. 
Yeah, but I'm going to... She's a poet. <laughs> and uh, an expert on Tennessee Williams, I understand. Yeah, I do love Tennessee Williams yeah. and kind of references to Streetcar Named Desire and some of the other plays kind of creep in to my books. I can't help it. I'm a bit of a sort of drama addict as well, actually. But the poetry thing seems to be something to keep quiet. I've discovered that most crime readers... Just have a show of hands. How many of you guys read poetry? I hate to be... Oh, loads. loads. Oh, God, I'm so yeah. wrong. OK, I, read, I write poetry. Go out and buy the <laughs> <Yeah>. law. I've <laughs> got two lovely these, collections for you all. These guys are very literate. <laughs> I know. They'll read Sorry the about that. <laughs> what about business-type issues? Did you all have uh, initial two-book contracts so that the second book was guaranteed, or were you selling them separately, or what? Um, I had a, an initial one-book contract because I won a competition, um, and that's how I got in. And on the back of that, um, they gave me a, a two-book deal for, for numbers two and three. Um, but, you know, it, reality and, and what you expect are slightly different. It, it's the old joke. You tell people, oh, I'm a published author. And they say, oh, have you sold much? I'm like, yep, sold my house, sold my car, <laughs> selling one of my kidneys. And then my um, soul. Yes. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's been great, but the business side of things was, was a completely different kettle of fish. But it's been, it's been a really interesting journey from that point, because my publishers are here. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the problem. We've all got our publishers yeah. there, so what are we going to say? What about you? What, any hassles along the way? Um, no. I, I, can't, I can't say. Everyone involved is probably in the audience. I can't. Can we just, yeah. like, clear the room of publishing professionals? <laughs> yeah. And then we can speak honestly. Um, no, I mean, I had a, a two-book... Um, two book deal and it was like you know um, bought on a preempt and I signed very quickly with an agent I, I signed with the first agent I sent to within like hours of sending and it all ran incredibly obnoxiously smoothly for me but it's it's once you start to get into the business where you start to get to know other writers um, and other publishing professionals and stuff. You start to see the complications in it, I think, and things that maybe happen to other people that you then start to worry about happening to you. And I mean, we all live with a constant fear of being dropped, um, and that's like a quite a big psychological burden, I think, for authors. That it's not much fun to talk about, but it is a fact of, of the business that you essentially freelance all the time. Mm. And it's not like you know being a hairdresser or something where you've got a transferable skill. If you are a crime writer, that's probably the only thing you're going to be able to write. Or ballet. It, you could try or ballet. ballet yeah. <laughs> well, think how it is for me. I've lived with that insecurity for 23 years. <laughs> we could be dropped at any point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Liam, you live... Actually, Liam's nearest neighbours are the penguins in Ant Antarctica. Lives in a very isolated spot on the South Island of New Zealand. And so what about reaction, fan reaction, reader reaction? Did you get much out of the first book? Um, not really. I mean, it's quite nice in a way to be. I remember uh, when Robert Burns, the great Scottish poet, was planning to emigrate to Jamaica when his first book was published. He, he wrote a letter saying, it'll be great. If everyone hates it, I'll be, you know, several thousand miles away. So there was a bit of that with my first book that it was published when I had just moved to New Zealand. So it was kind of great. I've got a book out and nobody in New Zealand had heard of it or was likely to, to read it. Probably nobody in Scotland or England had heard what I was likely to read it either, but to be, that's a different thing. So, yeah, it's, I've been quite sort of insulated, I think, from the whole that kind of business side of things and, and these literary festivals. It's brilliant to be back for a six-month period just now and actually get to go to some of these great events that you guys presumably just 
Every do week. the circuit every week, you're at a it's new event. It's absolutely constant. Yeah. It's the groupies, mate. It's the groupies you've got to watch. <laughs> well, Kate, having been a poet, was obviously inundated with fan mail already. Utterly. So. I mean, so many people in this country read poetry not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my, I suppose my first exposure to writing was being an English teacher, which did mean that I had to expose lots of children to poetry. You can imagine how popular that was, can't you? And what about reaction to your first and second and so on? Yeah, it was really lovely, actually, because I was still teaching uh, full-time when, um, when my first book came out in 2012. I was running a department in a big college in London. And the students dared me to write a novel. They said, oh, it's all, you know, you, you can write the occasional poem, but you'd be crap at writing a novel, <laughs> um, as 16-year-olds do. So I thought, well, sod that. I'd better write something half-decent. So I just did it for a dare, really. Didn't expect to be sat next to Lee Charles, sandwiched between Amit Mukherjee and Lee Charles and, you know, all these other talents. And it certainly wasn't really on the, on the cards. So for those with two book deals, then for book three, that's a new deal. And how did it go, uh, Liam? I mean, how did it... Uh, that went... Did that make you feel more established or mm. more insecure or what? Yeah, I mean, I, so I moved publishers after my, my first uh, two-book deal. And that was largely... I changed agent. My agent had a great uh, agent, Derek Johns, one of the great old-school London agents who didn't quite retire, he um, kept Sebastian Barry as his sole client, which I think tells you something about the kind of sales that Sebastian Barry enjoys. And so I moved to a new agent, Jim Gill, um, who's a Glasgow guy uh, based in London. And I don't want to sort of stereotype people from Glasgow, but he's quite go-ahead, shall we say. <laughs> um, so he was great. I just sort of left him to get on with it and was very fortunate to get this new two-book deal with, uh, with Harper Collins, But, uh, I mean, part of my problem as a crime writer is just I'm really, really slow. You know, I, I'm cultivating this niche as a slow-motion crime writer, which, which doesn't really exist. You're kind of not in the game unless you're publishing a book a year, and I'm sort of a book every four years. So I was quite heartened when Ian Rankin said that it was, you know, his seventh book that was the, the breakthrough book. I thought, God, I'll be about 103 before my <laughs> seventh book. Uh, Just start after every World Cup. Or? Exactly, yeah, it's a World Cup <laughs> book. That's, <laughs> that's how it goes. Yeah. Well, I'm glad your agent is the go-ahead guy. I was talking to another debut author who uh, his agent stopped answering emails. And, you know, that is a bad sign. <laughs> and uh, eventually he called the office and... Uh, said, I need to speak to so-and-so. And the office manager said, oh, he died four months ago. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a problem. Oh, no, that's a really traumatic thought. I've spent most of my weekend having a lovely time with my agent shopping in Harrogate. So that's a... And my, my agent's in the front row, forever. but he's not moving. And at what point, or, I mean, it's, I, know, I know what you're going to say, you're going to say it hasn't happened yet, but at what point did you feel you were in the groove and getting good at this? Either? I mean, do you, well, is there a point where you sort of think, yeah, I can do this, I'm just going to do the next one? I think the thing is, because I'd written like 15 books before I was published, I kind of felt like the one I sent out and the first Sigurdsson Freire book I sent out was the first one I was properly happy with. 
Um, and then when that got picked up, that kind of validated it. But I think the one that, the one that I now feel like I'm a proper writer is the one that's just out now, because it's my first standalone um, away from a series. And I felt like the series structure was a little bit of a crutch for me, because I'm a little bit, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit disorganised and chaotic. And having that structure in place of the series kind of enabled me to just go in and basically colour in a little bit. But going off and writing a book, you know, from scratch with, with no police in it um, and just like a standard thriller, that felt like a lot more of an achievement to me than writing a procedural. And I think, yeah, that's, that's, the, one where I'm, that's the one I'm really, really proud of. Tell, um, them, tell them the title. Oh, God, yes. This is how it ends. And it's like there's early paperbacks, which shouldn't be out for two weeks. I kind of feel like I've fulfilled my publisher's pain to send me here now, so I've paid them back the money they laid out. Available in the bookstore? <laughs> yeah, it is. She'll be signing afterward. <laughs> Liam, have you figured out how to do it yet? Um, I don't think so, no. I mean, uh, the book I've just, just published, The Quaker, is um, it's probably my first real crime novel. I know everyone says I started writing a novel and I didn't realise I was writing a crime novel, but that, again, was the case for my, my first book. So the first two books had a, a sort of investigative journalist protagonist and uh, the new ones are a police procedural, so I kind of feel that's a proper crime novel for the first time, which was, uh, was great fun to write. Um, possibly slightly less fun for my cousin, who's a retired firearms instructor with Strathclyde Police, so I would just badger him relentlessly, sort of, every night, send him an email and, and await his... He should really have got a co-writing credit, I feel, on the, <laughs> on the book. But having somebody in that position to keep you right on police procedures was, was pretty crucial. And how far, how near is the third one for you, uh, Abby? Or? Oh, for me? Um, yeah. It's just out, came out... Uh, Last month, I think. Okay. So, so, yeah. Why have I only got two titles down here? What's the title of the new one? Uh, Smoke and Ashes. I think that's probably why so I could say it. Smoke and Ashes. And, and the first the first one, because I'm an accountant as my day job, which you've helped get me out of almost. Mm -hmm. um, and so I knew my first book is 1919. The second one it had to be 1920. The third one's 1921. Otherwise, I'd get very upset if there was no continuity. <laughs> um, but just picking up what Eva said about... You know, your inner critic isn't as loud as it was. Mine's shouting at me. Mine's slapping me about the face. I don't feel... I still don't feel confident in, in what I write. Um, I still have the same, same issues. I, I hope I'm getting a wee bit better. But, you know, it, to me, it's still... Every day, I feel like an imposter. What about you? Buy <laughs> <laughs> <By> the books. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, clearly Abir has a serious psychological really... issue, so you, and you can help him out there in the book tent. <laughs> Unbelievable value. Yeah. Okay. That's really terrible, trying to monetize sympathy. <laughs> I'm not going to play that card. I'm not going to stoop that low. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think... I, I'm not totally convinced that you ever feel like you're doing it well, actually. I think it's, it's a fantastically satisfying job when it's going well. I mean, what's not to like about being paid to tell stories, to make up stories. It's an absolutely brilliant job. The trouble is you're just always convinced that those stories could be better. And because maybe because I write poetry, I'm forever reading the books out loud to myself as I go along, just to kind of hear how the sentences are falling. So as you can probably hear, I've just finished a book. <laughs> and hardly I speak. I don't smoke at all. Just, um, yeah, so... You're constantly looking inwards. I think that's the tough bit. And you're constantly never sure that you're doing a good job. But 
What's good about being ultra-confident? Nothing, I don't think. I'm no big fan of smug bastards. <laughs> so here I am, buy my book. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously the only not smug bastard on the stage currently. <laughs> Sorry, Lee. With you, an exception. No, but... <laughs> Obviously, obviously, the only qualification, the only training for being a writer is, is being a reader first. So what, what had you been reading and, why, and what about it led you to crime? Was it just the preponderance of what you were reading or was it just that where your head was, Eva? I didn't actually read an awful lot of crime just to make myself unpopular. Um, I've read like, a lot of classics and literary fiction um, and a lot of um, horror, actually, which is what I thought I'd write originally, because I was a complete goth. Um, but I don't know, it didn't go that way. I sent something um, to a writer to look at, um, and they, they said to me, you shouldn't be writing horror, you should be writing crime, because there's there was just more of a crime bent to it. So I started reading crime at that point, um, and the kind of person that I picked up first and just binged all his books was Ian Rankin, um, and he's had, like, a huge influence on me as an author of how to kind of sustain a series and how to have characters that people hopefully love, but, you know, while they're still complicated, conflicted, slightly prickish people. Because um, I don't know, you know, this whole thing of having, like, a, a likeable main character is... I don't know. I think you, you want somebody with flaws, don't you? I mean, with... Sam, it's the Sam's flaws that make you kind of love him, I think, as a reader. Well, the thing is, when I write the first draft, because in my head, Sam is me and Surrender Not is me, and when I write the yeah. first draft, my agent, my, my editors always say, he's really, he's really a bit of a dick, isn't he? And I'm like, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah it is, it's the flaws and the quirks yeah. that, that, that make me interest in the characters, and I hope it's what interests the readers. It's interesting how you say that you're both characters, because I, I think sometimes as a reader, when I pick a book up, if there's two main characters, I think, oh, the reader's obviously that one. But as a writer, I know they're not, because I'm Zygotrin Ferreira at the yeah. same time. And it's really, really bizarre how that works. And you're kind of everyone, but you're really those two main characters. I think... I, don't, I think in your case, in my case, anyway, because we come from this sort of dual background, we always yeah. have that dual narrative in our heads. We have the mm. British side and the outsider. Yeah. And they play out in our heads constantly from a very early age. And yeah. I think, for me, that's, you know, Sam and Surrender not just these two voices that are sometimes in conflict, but sometimes backing up each other, yeah. that take part, you know, in my head every day. Yeah. I think the really scary thing is that we're, we're actually all our characters. You know, normally you get that very benign, pleasant question, how much of you is in the hero? Which is a really nice question, because generally speaking, the hero, for, for all the flaws possibly and the eccentricities, the hero is, is a solid person. And you're quite flattered to think somebody's seeing you in him or her. But of course, the bad guys are also you. Um, you know, they're coming out of the other half of your head. The monsters are you as well. Did you feel that, Kate? Well, I was just thinking while you were speaking that this, it's always alarmed me just how much I like writing the baddies, actually. Yeah. We sort of vent our kind of nastiness onto the page, I think, which is why crime writers are all so chilled, isn't it? Because we're kind of being so deeply unpleasant on the page. But there is something very exciting about writing about somebody who's so completely out of control. Their moral compass is completely broken. <laughs> I think that that's very exciting territory to explore because we're never likely to, are we? I mean, I, I have no dagger concealed in my handbag, disappointingly. <laughs> mm. Liam, you, you're, you're all your characters? 
Pretty much, I think, yeah. And I had the same experience uh, as a beer with my first editor at Faber, who said, this guy's not really a particularly sympathetic character. And my response was, well, yes, it's kind of me, and I'm possibly not a terribly sympathetic character either. But I think that, uh, you know, rather like, uh, like Eva, uh, Ian Rankin was a, a huge influence on, on me. And that sense of the book's coming alive when Cafferty comes on to the page. You've finally got someone who's the equal of Rebus. I think that's why it's such great fun to write the villains. That's when there's, the book comes alive and you can see just what's at stake in the narrative. I think the, the Cafferty, the books with Cafferty in, him, in them are my favourites. And it's, yeah. it's because he's such a great villain. And sometimes writing the villains is, is so much more fun, isn't yeah. it? Mm. You grew up, though, in a writer's household. So did that have an effect on you? Yeah, um, was it predetermined in some way? Or at least you knew that such a career existed? I knew that it was possible to, to do that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was quite, quite... I remember sitting at my, the kitchen table drawing alternative covers for Laidlaw and, and so on. And, and, you know, that book was written in the front room of the house I, I grew up in. Um, so there was all that. But my old man, my old man left when I was 10, and he wasn't a particularly sort of literary or club, but he didn't hang around with writers, so... I didn't really have as, as sort of literary an upbringing as you might have anticipated with, uh, with my old man. But of course, it's been, uh, you know, you publish a book, a crime novel set in Glasgow, and your name's Mark Ovani. People are going to make comparisons. And, uh, so that can be a bit sort of debilitating, I think, if you're to dwell too strongly on that relationship and, and those comparisons. I just try to write the books and leave that to other people to, to sort of draw those comparisons. And Kate, what have you been reading that really made you do it? Made me do it? I think if I had to really pinpoint one particular book that just kind of flicked that switch and said, write a crime novel, it would have to be Brighton Rock by Graham Greene. It's such an exquisite work of darkness. I just remember reading it when I was about 13 or 14, a really sort of formative age for reading anything. And he described the sea as being poison bottle green. And I just thought... What's a poison bottle and why does it have to be green? It just kind of um, was so exquisitely visual. Um, so, yeah, I'm a die-hard Graham Greene fan. Yeah. Interesting that my, uh, uh, Ian Rankin's name has come up so much because generally speaking, when we look at writers' careers, we tend to look, obviously, from now in retrospect and it compresses the chronology to a tremendous extent. And everybody thinks of Ian as massive always, you know, just always been a huge figure. But what I find interesting about it, Ian was that, like all of us, you know, he was relatively obscure for many books at the beginning, to the point where he, would, he, he believed that it was not going to work. Uh, you know, he believed this was not going to happen. And so he wrote a rebus with just total abandon, with no thought oh, of the market, you know, no thought mm -hmm. of it. Work. It was just like fulfilling a contract, get it done. And it was so organic and free-spirited that that was the breakthrough. That was the massive success. And so, in a way, it's better to... Is it better to just try and divorce yourself from the aspiration? Or do you feel that you've got to follow some kind of professional path and, and try harder and harder and harder? It's very odd that giving up is actually, actually what created his success. I think it was the anger as well, wasn't it? That, you know, he spoke about having... His uh, younger son diagnosed with this chronic mm. condition and so on, and he wrote the book in a sort of white heat of, mm -hmm. of rage. But I think that's right, being able to 
divorce yourself from thinking about the expectations, how the book will be received, and so on. And I certainly found that with this third book, that I wrote this book out of contract, which was just a great relief. No one was sort of knocking at the door, where's your book? I was able just to write it for the pleasure of, of writing the book. And then I had the great experience of, instead of trying to sell four chapters mm. or an idea, here's a book, do you want it or not? So that was, that was nice too. And how did that go? It was, what, it sold straight away? It was easy? Well, we, yeah, it, well, Jim Gill did his Glaswegian stuff <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we got it sold pretty promptly, so. Uh -huh. Eva, what do you think about? The kind uh, of commercial? About how you, I mean, how closely do you, how much is the monkey on your back like, oh my God, I'm a professional writer, this, better, this, this needs to be good? Or can you still just do it for yourself? I'm quite chilled out about it. Um, I think really because when I wrote the first Sigurdsson Forever book, it was, it's about exploitation of migrant labourers. And I kind of knew that was never going to be a big commercial success. And the whole idea of setting a set of books in a hate crimes department was never going to, maybe was never going to have mass appeal. So that was immensely freeing because I don't really have to care too much you know, if what I'm writing is going to be unpopular. So I get, I get to write from this place of anger. So basically each book starts with something that I'm absolutely fucking furious about, and then that turns into a book. So at the end of it, if nothing else, I feel like I've written about something that's overlooked in the genre or overlooked in society or, you know, a group of victims that maybe people don't really care about. So I get to be, you know... <laughs> kind of a little bit up myself at the end of the book, so, oh, well, I've done something on a moral crusade. So it, the rest of it doesn't really matter to me that much. So I, I think I'm probably quite lucky that I'm just somebody who doesn't really feel that, yeah, maybe doesn't feel that pressure to be kind of a commercially viable author because I feel like what I'm writing about is important. And, you know, the books luckily are kind of critically acclaimed at least, so that's, that's basically what keeps me knowing that I'm on the right track with it. And Abia, you are, uh, you're establishing a pretty solid channel of, uh, you're writing about a specific place, um, a specific society, uh, and you've mentioned in a rather accounting OCD type of way, it's sequential years. So that kind of predicts what the next book is going to be in the next. Uh, is that a strength or is that a worry that you're locking yourself into something? It's, it's becoming a bit of a worry, to be honest with you. I mean, l like Eva, I sort of write almost as therapy and as anger management because, you know, it, it, in, in my opinion, it's, it's a period in our history which we, we've forgotten about um, and we, we forget our history at our own peril. Um, if you're sitting between cultures, it's an even bigger risk because it's, about, it's a search for your identity. And so I am writing about issues that I think affect us today that started back then and, and that are things that we've forgotten about. However, you do get into a pattern. Um, there are so many other things that I want to write about. I would love to write the story of my father and mother's experience as immigrants to this country because I think... You know, I'm going to say something very controversial here. I think we give ourselves, white people, you give yourselves a hard time in this country. I think this country, it's not perfect. And there's a lot of issues around immigration. There's a lot of terrible things. But people like my parents came here and received, op they suffered persecution, they suffered um, racism, but they got opportunities here that they didn't have back home. And I want to explore things like that. But I can't because I have something that has a level of commercial success that publishers want to back. 
Um, I can't suddenly, because it's not enough for me to give up my day job, which means I still need to keep writing the books that they want rather than the books that I want. The good thing is I still have a lot that I want to explore in the, in the period of the Raj, but you know, one day I would like to explore much more modern issues that affect our society. Sorry, that was a wee bit serious. I do apologize. <laughs> and what about uh, if you do break away, you're going to have to do it pretty soon. I mean, the example would be Michael Connolly, who did three Harry Bushes and then moved away to a standalone for his fourth. I think you. Do you think you can wait any longer than that? I mean, you can't do it for your 24th, otherwise people think, well, that's weird. No, you're right, but it comes down to commercial considerations. The, the, the fact is that um, my publishers will pay me in advance for another two, Wyndham and Banerjee's. They may not pay me in advance, which allows me to, to write something that I want to write just yet. And I think that's one of the commercial pressures of the industry today. Um, it, it's difficult, but I, I, you, you are absolutely right, sir, in that, you know, where is that point? When can I make that decision to write something that I think is very important, but which may not have the mass market appeal, but is something that I think needs to be told because there is another side to immigration and, and race relations in this country that I think we're forgetting, and the fact is we're very good at it. On, in terms of a worldwide basis, we are actually a very good country at, at integrating immigrants, and we've been doing it for centuries. Um, so I don't know, I don't know what... You do it for a different publisher under a pen name, you could have a less complicated name. Well, <laughs> it's time, it's time. Yeah. What about you, Kate? Do you feel in any way that, you've, that you're dictated to what you've got to do next, or are you prepared to do whatever you want to do? I had the experience of writing five books, um, five books about a forensic psychologist all based in London. And then my contract ended, and I was sort of out in the wilderness. And at that point, I decided I wanted to just write something that I was going to really, really enjoy writing. So I've started to write books that are set in the Ciliars, sort of made a geographic change. Um, and it's been incredibly liberating, actually. I was feeling like I was kind of locked into that one location. Sorry. Yeah. You know, that in a way, you kind of, if you write too many books set in one place, people associate you just with that one terrain. So I think... There is something to be said for ringing the changes imaginatively. I mean, for me, it was a kind of leap back into my childhood anyway, because I spent just about all of my childhood holidays down in Cornwall and on the Silly Isles. It's a really fantastic place to be. These tiny little islands with just sort of 80 or 100 people on them. Perfect whodunit territory, I'd say. Cool. Well, we're going to do uh, questions from the audience as well. So. Think of all the questions that you want to ask. There are no bad questions, apart from one or two. <laughs> um, but we'll deal with them. So are there any questions from the audience at this point? Hi. Mine is a very commercial question. So does it matter to you whether people buy to read on Kindle or in paper? Does it actually matter financially to you? Could yeah. we give a monkeys? It's all money in the bank. Yeah, but it's Go different amounts of money routes. in the bank. That's, that's true. That's the problem. That is it's true. paperback and ideally hard, but you don't... I mean, if you're buying a... Mind you, if you're buying a two, you know, two paperbacks for seven quid from Asda, that author's barely getting not even pennies. Um, so you'd probably be better for that borrowing it from the library um, and supporting libraries, which would be great. 
Otherwise, I mean, it's hardback, I think, is where the money is really for authors, isn't it? But I, you I, think, I think if you're in doubt, just buy all three versions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the reality of commercial, the commercial side of it is, is yeah, we make, farm, we make most money out of a hardcover and secondly out of a full, a full price paperback or a slightly discounted paperback. Ebook is is the lowest royalty, but um, so buy a hardcover. You know, I don't see why not. It's it is a strange thing, and I mean, I'm absolutely not complaining. But uh, we have a very distorted and odd sense of value. Where I, I I stopped across the road at that place called Hoxton North, and I paid five pounds twenty for two very small cups of coffee, and there was a line of people doing that, and yet people say books are too expensive. Give me an effing break. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Liam? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I'm slightly insulated from that business side because I've got a day job, which possibly is also the reason why I'm slightly slower because I don't have that commercial imperative to, to sort of get the books out. But there's a logical fallacy there. If you were earning more for the, from the books, you could give up the day job. You could move away from Antarctica. You could. Yeah, I quite enjoy Antarctica. I quite, the penguins and I got on the pretty well. Yeah. So, yeah. you're an accountant. What do you think? Um, you're absolutely right in terms of the values that we place on books or the lack of value that we place on years of work, not just by the authors, but the man years that are put in by the rest of the team, the editors, etc., and the industry. And uh, it, it makes no sense to me. Um, how, how, where did we get to, how did we get become a society where we place more value on a cup of coffee than we do on something that can change our lives and has changed everybody's life? We've all read a book that's changed our lives, and yet we balk at paying um, more than a, you know, in, in many cases, more than a pound for a book. I know I went into the works today, and you can buy three really good, you know, not really lovely. Um, paperbacks, five pounds. So, you know, three books for the cost of two cups of coffee. It's a kind of skewed equation, isn't it, really? Yeah, we hate that. Any, any more questions? <laughs> yeah, uh, person here. Um, I'm just wondering, when you're writing your dialogue, because all three of you um, have absolutely brilliant dialogue and it makes the stories just come to life, oh. do, you, do you have a process of how you want to how you write your dialogue, or does it just come naturally when you when you're writing? And hi, beer, by the way. Hi, Dad. Um, all three, <laughs> all three books are great, guys. Buy them; they're fabulous. Um, so I'm just, yeah, I'm just wondering: is there a process, or does it just come organically when you when you're writing the book? I feel like if you know the character, which you should do before you start, it should come out organically. I think that, the idea of tinkering with dialogue seems really weird because you should be hearing all of those voices in your head to begin with. So I think it's the, it's the prep work. If you've done the work and you know that character inside and out, they're just going to talk through you, I think. That's how it works for me anyway. Mm. Yeah. I often find the dialogue is the, the first thing I write, mm. that uh, you get that sense of conflict with, with two characters and you, you write the dialogue and then I find myself sort of filling in the kind of body language and the yeah. bits of narration in between. Best fun, I think, in yeah. writing dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly think that you can't explain how to write dialogue, you can't learn how to do it, but you absolutely recognise whether dialogue is ringing true or not, and it's such a subtle difference. It's almost impossible to say why one is wrong and one is right. It's really got to be cut to the bone, I think. I mean, I think dialogue's got to be really crisp and precise, almost like a poem, because if you, if you give people lots of very long, lengthy exposition, 
it's quite boring and people don't speak that way. So I think listening out to what people are saying at bus stops and in cafes is probably the best way to learn how to write dialogue, really. It's a bit like a tennis match almost. It's just a, a yeah. back and forth. Ping pong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With, with sort of that sort of rhythmic. And I think Mr. Child's, you know, the past master at that, just the, the mesmerising quality of the dialogue in... in Don't worry, he loves you already. Oh, being honest. <laughs> yeah. being honest, He's honest. telling me. It's fine. You can What happens to me, though, is I <laughs> absolutely stri strip it down and, and just, put as, just make it as simple as possible, but then I, I'll go back and read it the next day, and I realise that I... I I thought it made sense yesterday, and it, it actually doesn't. And, you know, it does maybe need an extra word or some kind of extra emphasis. Because when you're really totally in your head, mm. because you're hearing it, you are assuming meaning that the reader might not immediately get. So, mm. so that is about the only thing I ever revise. I go back, and if the, if the four words of dialogue don't work, I might have to make it five. Mm. Mm. Well, Reacher said nothing in a slightly different <laughs> tone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's why I do Reacher said nothing. It saves me thinking of a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody got another question? Oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jack reaches. Um, one of my pals, actually. And my, me and my sister, we always buy a hard book because we can't wait for it to come out in soft pack. And I just think, as your guests today, if they could do it as well as you, they'd be millionaires, literally speaking. Oh, well, that's very nice, but, and they will. <laughs> I mean, again, like I said about Ian Rankin, people misremember my career, you know? My, when I started out, my agent said, this business, it takes you 10 years to become an overnight success. And it really did. Uh, you know, I was obscure for many, many years at the beginning. And um, the only thing that kind of worries me, and I'd like your opinion on this, is that when I started out, it was a somewhat different business in that it was conceivable somebody would be given 10 years. And do you feel that that is somehow being whittled down uh, to, to a much smaller number? Oh, God, definitely. Um, I mean, there's writers who, when my first book was published, that I'd been reading their work, and they were maybe their third or fourth book, and I really admired them. They've just disappeared off the face of the earth. And it's ridiculous, because they were hugely talented people who obviously, I don't know, had the wrong agent or weren't supported by their publishers or whatever. And they should still be working. We should still be getting the benefit of their talent. And we're not. And I think with this industry as well, because it's, it's quite an intense job, actually writing and, and the community and everything, it's quite intense, that if you're not doing it, I can see why it's tempting to just walk away completely. I mean, literally, you do not see them at events anymore, even. Very, very, um, very, very insecure, I think, in comparison to how it was maybe in the 90s, when, you know, huge six-figure contracts were being handed out for, you know... I'm not going to say middling because they're not middling, but you know what I mean. It's the the if you look at the recent report of into authors' wages, they've plummeted, and it's ridiculous because mm. the jobs are just as hard, if not harder, because there's so much more being published in competition. It's um, yeah, I think it's a really really insecure job. There's so much other stuff in competition as well. Yeah. You know, oh god, yeah. 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 Again, Ian Rankin would be the, the classic example there, wouldn't he? That you would a publisher carry Ian Rankin for seven mm. books to get the breakthrough now. Probably not. Yes, yeah. so it's all a lot, a lot more pressurised. It has to be a lot faster now at the beginning. I, d I don't think you've got room for a misstep. I mm. think you have to build it book on book. And the, the minute you've, you've stopped 
going upwards, I think the the support disappears a lot quicker these days. Mm. Um, you know, if your second book doesn't build on your first and your, your third doesn't build on your second, mm. the risk factor is, is huge now. And you're also kind of really dependent on lucky breaks. Um, I don't know, it's probably the same for us all, but my Silly Island books have just been optioned for TV. And that's a real relief because inevitably that kind of is likely that you're going to carry on being published. If it makes it to the telly, the likelihood is you're going to be able to flog a few books, I guess. It's not, it's not necessarily the fault of the publishers. This is no. because of the demise of the netbook agreement that's, that's led to this. Mm. Um, so the industry as a whole is under a lot of pressure. And, and the commercial reality is that a few very large-name authors make a lot of the money for the publishers, so they're placing fewer bets and larger chips on those individuals, mm. and it's tougher for you know, other people. Yeah. We've probably got time for a couple more questions. Who wants to... Who's got something to say? Hello. This is a question for Kate. Um, you mentioned Tennessee Williams, who is my hero. Oh, good and for I you. wondered what it is in his work that inspires you. I think um, my very first job was in the theatre. I was an usherette at a theatre in London, which was just a great job because it meant I got to see loads and loads of plays for free. And the first run of plays that I got to see was Tennessee Williams. So, A Glass Menagerie, Streetcar Named Desire, Sweet Bird of Youth. It all unfolded in front of my eyes. And those plays are just full of gothic drama and twists and turns that any crime writer would be proud of. So, oh, I'm so glad you like Tennessee Williams. I think he's the bee's knees. I agree. <laughs> Great question, thank you. Who's next? I assume that most authors hope, wish, or long for television companies or film companies to take up the rights to their books. And I just wondered if, uh, which actors you picture as your protagonists, or which actors in a dream world, in an ideal world, would you like to have a Benedict Cumberbatch, come on down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to turn up my nose at Benedict if he comes a knocking at my door. Um, but you know what, I've got to say, in all honesty, just about everybody I know, we've all had blooming been in this position of getting your work option for the telly, and then it never comes off. You know, your chances are about 5%, and at the very best, it's a long game. But I've got to admit that when I lie in bed now, not only am I thinking, what are the records that I'm going to have on Desert Island Discs when I'm really, really famous, but also, will Benedict Cumberbatch agree to be the lead man? <laughs> That's how sad my life is. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, those dreams are totally sustaining. I, I agree. <laughs> what do you think, Eva? Have you got... Uh... Um, just to be, like, argumentative, um, I don't really think about the actors. Um, the thing that, that really kind of keeps me awake at night that I really want to be writers, I think about what script writer I want on there. So I'm watching TV shows thinking, oh, who's actually decent at dialogue and, and who's going to get the pacing right? And I've been really lucky that the script writers that have been brought in on the Ziggich and Forever series and on the standalone yeah, are people whose brilliant. work I hugely hugely admire that oh, I'm not surprised I think it's embargoed I can't say anymore but the script writer on This Is How It Ends is an absolute hero of mine and I'm just delighted to have her on there um, so that's that's kind of what it does with me because all actors are going to be fine they're probably all going to be good about so they wouldn't be working but I think script writing on TV is quite uneven and the, you know having somebody else take your words and work with them that's that's a delicate procedure that you can get quite angry about so I want them to be good 
Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that uh, you know, the, the quake has been option for, for TV as well. It's a lovely roll of the dice. It would probably never happen. But the, the treatment that the production company gave to the book, they just got it spot on. So, so I'm uh, hopeful if, if that comes if to fruition that, that they'll do a good job. But I think a lot of that depends, as Eva says, on who is attached as a scriptwriter. I think there's a very small number of bankable scriptwriters. If you've got one of these guys, if you've got Jed Mercurio or something like that attached to your project, it's probably got quite a good chance of success. If you don't, then it probably doesn't. James McAvoy would be my choice. What about you, Abby? How about Tom Cruise? Um, well, it's, it's a bit too tall. It's a bit too tall for Sam. No, um, no um, I would say that I think the, the industry is changing. Um, we, uh, the, the Wyndham series was actually optioned before the first book came out, um, but that option went nowhere. But uh, since then, it's been, it came out of option in January, but since then, we've got five or six parties who are now interested and it's mm. going to auction. And the reason is because the world, the media world is changing. Now it's all about content and getting content into as many markets as you can. So the Netflixes and the Amazons who are making a big play for India see this as content that they can put in both the Western markets and in India. So it's, it's almost got a different dynamic. Um, in terms of who I have as Sam, David Tennant, I, I think would be very yeah. nice. Good choice. Yes. Yeah. There you go. That's it. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> and for Surrender Not, um, actually, if any of you watch The Big Bang Theory, um, if you know Raj, is played by a guy called Kunal Nair, he, is, he has come to London to see me to play the part of Surrender Not. Um, so, yeah, it's great. It's great fun hanging around with you know, Hollywood celebrities, but then nothing happens. <laughs> um, and I go home and he flies off, and I'm still changing nappies the next day. <laughs> What I, what I liked about uh, the situation on my first movie was that the, the screenwriter was also the director, which I think is really, really important because, you know, we used to work in television, and what happens is you have a great screenplay, but, of course, everything is permanently going wrong. And so, typically, the first thing that is sacrificed is, is the screenplay. You know, if, screen, if a scene is not working, then they'll just butcher it and substitute something else. But if the director has been the screenwriter, he's incredibly defensive of the screenplay, so it, it endures better. Um, so I was really lucky with that, that the, the, the screenplay, which was great, made it to the screen almost unaltered, because he was in charge of it, which was a huge bonus. Brilliant. And the... Um, the Silly Isles thing, that picks up very well in Britain because they love the regional shows in Britain. Yeah. You know, the so. Hebrides and so yeah. on, the Anne Cleves shows. And Maybe there's something about the fact that we're a small island nation anyway, that we really do like small islands. And, yeah. Well, it's because we have a sort of uh, man mandate to represent the whole of the country, mm. you know, because this... Yeah. It's it is, a microcosm. It's a small mm. country and it's, all, you know, it's so much about London that... Everybody wants to say, no, it's not. You know, we've got shows about everywhere. So yeah. that yeah. Uh, it's quite a smart move tactically to write about an obscure region of Britain because somebody God. will pick it up I and say, I... look, how, look how inclusive we are. I wish I could claim that I'd been tactical. It was just a kind of, it was a lucky accident. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I did. Any more questions? I just wondered uh, if you had... Any of you, all of you, a favourite non-crime contemporary writer? Somebody that you go to when you think... I mean, we all love crime, but 
this. Well, funnily enough, with Kate sitting here, my, my favorite person to read is a guy called Daniel Mendelssohn, who's a, a classicist and an essayist. And uh, he has a wonderful, wonderful book of essays called How Beautiful They Are and How Easily They Are Broken, which Kate will recognize as actually a stage direction out of the Glass Menagerie. Well done. Yeah. God. <laughs> it was just me who so obsessively read Tennessee Williams. You're all going to have to go home and read it now, aren't you? Yeah. I actually read a lot of stage plays, I've got to admit. I, I, re I really like some of the guys who are out there writing... Now, I mean, women as well, Polly Stenham, um, David Hare. Very interesting because it really teaches you to write good dialogue, reading stage plays as well. Um, I'm a huge fan of Jhumpa Lahiri. I don't know if any of you have come across her. Um, my wife introduced me to a book called The Namesake, um, which is about a Bengali family leaving India and going to America. Um, and, and it was a book that really spoke to me, but all of her books, you know, are fantastic. But that immigrant experience and that second generation, you know, growing up in a, in a country which is your country, but your culture is from somewhere else, um, was fascinating. And I hadn't read that before. Um, and since then, I've been a huge fan of her work. Tim Winton, the Australian writer, is, oh, yeah. is my sort of go-to guy when I'm not reading crime. Just writes these very lyrical sort of muscular books about... What's that, what's that exquisite book that he wrote about surfing? Breath. Breathe. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Not to be confused yeah. with uh, Don McDonald's forthcoming book, Breathe. Ah. Breath. Breath. But he's fabulous. But I also read quite a lot of poetry um, when I'm writing Yay. to sort of prime the pump. I like to sort of read a bit of <laughs> Sinead Morrissey or Touch of Heaney or Muldoon before I get down to, to work for the day. Brilliant. Mm, so I'm not sure if it counts as non-fiction, but I've got... Because um, I read quite a lot of really depressing non-fiction for research. The way I kind of get away from that is I bake and cook a lot. So um, I've got a huge cookbook collection um, that I really should try and get under control. But uh, Diane Henry, who's, is, she's a great food writer, um, and her cookbooks have... You know, there's beautiful stories kind of strung through them. And just even, like, the introduction that's this big to a recipe kind of draws you into a different little world of her food. I think this panel is totally worth it. I've learned something I never knew. Eva Darwin likes cooking and baking. <laughs> I've completely <laughs> undermined my entire image now, haven't I? You have. Honestly, my Madeline's are sublime. <laughs> <laughs> my concealed secret is I like ironing. <gasps> I don't like the way this is heading. <laughs> no, it's worrying. <laughs> <laughs> Who else has got a question? <laughs> Usually when you have questions, you say, yeah, the guy in the blue shirt. And they all look down. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas women know what they're wearing, men are never quite sure. <laughs> no idea. Um, given that crime fiction, a lot of it is about the pursuit of truth, um, how does the fact that we live in a post-truth, fake new age impact upon what you're writing? It stopped me writing. Essentially, it's been just so stressful and so depressing since Brexit and then Trump. I've been almost paralysed with anger, and I've, I've not been. I had to take a year off because I was so rage-filled, um, and it just knocked my personal equilibrium off. And I've not been able to write um, for a year because of it, and partly because I'm like, do I need to dig a bunker or something in my back garden should I be working on my crossbow skills and stuff so it's not been good to be honest mate 
No. <laughs> I think my take on it is, why should we believe a fake when he says that we're living in an era of fake news? I'm not, I'm not buying it. Hmm. Yeah. What, so you don't think there's fake news? Um, I think he's fake news. I think he fabricates and um, tells a lot of lies about himself and about yeah. situations, conversations he's had, decisions he's made. I think he's utterly fake. Yeah. But I can't believe that all the news that we hear is fake. I, think I feel like to... we're going to have to have this one in, in the bar later. It's going to be a yeah, dust up, isn't there, Eva? I can see it in yeah. her face. She's not going to be serving me any Madelines today. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it, no fruitcake. Could okay. I just say, for me, it raises the bigger issue of... Yeah, the fact is that both on that side of the pond and on this side, I think in Europe, we seem to be splitting into two halves of society that aren't talking to each other. For me, that's the bigger issue. The idea that there is no longer something which is objective truth, because if you're either looking at it from there or from there, in one definition it's fake and the other it's not. That, to me, is really scary. The idea that a US president could stand up and say something treasonous and still be applauded is, is an issue not to do with what he's saying, but with what is happening to our society. That's why Brexit came as such a shock to so many of us, because we never felt that we were out of touch with half of the population of our own country. And that is a fault of all of us, and it's a fault of our leadership. And, you know, the other thing that worries me about Brexit today is we don't have politicians of any gravitas from any side. Who, where is the leadership coming from? We seem to have, on both sides, you know, devolved into this mass of people who are just chattering. Mm. And we're not talking to each other, we're talking past each other. To me, that's the bigger issue than, than fake news. Well, what is fake news? Everything has an, you know, a side to it, everything has opinion, but when did we stop agreeing that there is an objective bit in the middle that we can all say, well, that is right? And that's what the novel does so well. The novel can help with that. The novel mm. orchestrates competing viewpoints and shows you multiple perspectives on a topic. Um, people should read more novels. Yeah. I feel, it starts the dialogue, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, people should read more novels. Mm. Yeah. They should. Mm. Buy them too. As much as I don't like Trump or as much as I don't like Jacob Rees-Mogg or somebody like that, it's... It's the people that lie behind him, the people that voted for him, that bother me. And I suspect that I'm not addressing too many of them, because I think there is a rough uh, split in society, and you could say that the sort of people who are deeply involved with books, who read as a passion, who read as their primary entertainment, are probably not those people. So, but, but anecdotally, I always read my friends and contemporaries. I mean, I read as much randomly as I can. I read every new thing I possibly can, but I also read the, um, you know, those bunch of people that I know that I've always read. And anecdotally, their books from last year and this year are so good. Uh, you would expect randomly some of them to be at their peak or some better than previously. And so I read one of my friends and it was a really good book and I thought, great, you know, he's done great this year. And then I read the next one and it was really good. And it started to become a bit of a coincidence. They are all really good over the last couple of years. And I think that is because uh, either me as a reader or them as a writer or both, we're so deeply burrowing into escaping the real world that actually the, the quality of the work is going up and up. Anyway, a person is holding a thing that says time, so we're done. Thank you to these four. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.